0: please, if you have a Bible, take it out and open it up to Ephesians chapter 6. You'll find the notes this morning's message in the bulletin or online if you're visiting us there. And this morning, God willing, we will complete a section of the letter that we've been in now for about two months. What I've referred to as the household code, starting back in chapter 5, verse 22, going all the way through six. 9. And in this code, three sets of relationships have been expounded upon. God cares intimately about how we order our households. It's not simply a matter of expediency or preference, but how we relate to one another in our homes, how we relate to one another in our families is of great concern to God. I'd like to begin by reading the final section, the final couplet of Slaves and Masters, the ESV. Um, I think unhelpfully translates it, bond servants, and we'll be focusing on verse 9 this morning. Let's read together Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will is to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, that there is no partiality with him. Lord God, as we look at this final relationship, I pray that you would give us grace. You would help us to receive your word as good, as healthy, as life-giving. That we might understand the role of authority and rule in this world and how we are to exercise it. Lord God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Because of our pause last week um, to focus on a doctrine of the Reformation. I'll give you a little reminder of where we are in this letter, especially as we're closing out this section. Ephesians um, easily divides in half. Six chapters, the first three primarily focused on gospel truth, orthodoxy, theology. It's dominated by indicative verbs. As Paul says, this is, this is what has been done and then starting in chapter 4, how we're to live in light of it. Now that distinction is critical because most of the ethical instructions and commands and the imperatives are found in the second half of the book. And we, we need to understand these flow out of salvation. They're not the cause of salvation. They're the fruit on the tree that salvation bears in our lives. And Paul organizes his ethical instruction around the metaphor of walking. We saw the five walks starting in chapter four: one, walk in a worthy manner. We saw in five seventeen, we're no longer to walk as the Gentiles. We saw in, fa- in sorry four seventeen, in five two to walk in love, five eight walk as children of light, and then we get to our final walk in five fifteen. Look careful then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise. And this is the first of three antitheses as he's describing this final section of ethical instruction. Not as unwise but as wise. Verse 16, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, second antithesis, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And then verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So walking in wisdom, walking um, as wise, walking filled with the Spirit. These are three ways of talking, this final section. And then he describes the fruit, the results that flow out of being filled with the Spirit. Contrary to a lot of what we may think or be taught, being filled with the Spirit is seen primarily in, verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that, verse 21, makes the link then to the household code. The verb submit that you see in your English translations in verse 22 is actually supplied from verse 21. So we're to understand the household code, how we relate to each other in our homes, husbands and wives, parents and children, slaves and masters. These are all connected with and an outflow of being filled with the Spirit walking in wisdom, and all of that is an outflow of salvation and redemption that occurred in Christ Jesus. So moving it forward, as saved people, as people chosen before the world began, as people redeemed, made alive, seated with Christ, God intends for us, he's made us for good works. We're to live, we're to walk a certain way, and one of the ways we're to walk is in wisdom, not in folly. We are to walk um, with understanding, And we are to walk in the Spirit. And as we do that, we will properly relate to one another. We will order our relationships. So the the mark of a Spirit-filled wife is her submission to her husband. The mark of a Spirit-filled husband is his sacrificial leadership and sanctifying of his bride. The mark of a Spirit-filled child is that he honors and obeys his parents. Mark of a spirit-filled father as he's diligent to disciple and to instruct and to discipline his children. The mark of a spirit-filled slave is willing, obedience, submission, and service to his master without grumbling. And now this morning we're going to see the mark of a spirit-filled master is a just and right rule. So, if you look at this last section... It follows a pattern Paul's established earlier in the letter. Earlier in chapter 4, we got the pattern for change that involves a putting off and a putting on and a renewal. And I've organized the clauses of this verse around that pattern. The order is altered. First, you have the put on. Masters do the same to them. And then the put off, stop your threatening. And then we get truth. It's supposed to transform their thinking. Why would they do this? Knowing something. So that's the way we're going to look at this. Do this, not that. With this in mind, with your minds renewed by this truth. That's how we're going to move through this. Now, no one here, I hope, is a slave master. But I do think the principles of rule here apply to all positions of authority. Whether you're a boss or a manager in your company. To some degree, I think it applies to, to parents and children. Uh, what, we, what we see here is timeless truth for authority and for rule. And so we see, first of all, what they are to put on. Masters do the same Things are the same thing to them. Which, of course, raises the question, what does he mean the same thing? There's a couple options. I think the Greek makes this a little clearer. The verb translated do there in verse 9 is Greek word poieo. That means to make, to craft, to work, to produce. And he used it twice back in his instruction to slaves. In verse 6, they are to do the will of God from the heart. Verse 8, knowing that whatever anyone does, whatever anyone works, Whatever anyone accomplishes, um, whatever good anyone does, this you will receive back from the Lord. I think that's the antecedent. So your first blank is, what does it mean to do the same? It means to do the will of God from the heart. And before we look at that, I want you to notice something. Um, there's so much at work in this passage to humble to bring down, to stop masters from from thinking too much of themselves. And the first is, they don't even get their own separate set of instructions. They get the same instructions their slaves got. Masters, do the same thing I just told your slaves to do. And they get told this in the hearing of their slaves. The slaves get to hear this. One set of instructions is applicable to both of them. Both masters and slaves are to do the will of God from the heart. Both masters and slaves are to do good to each other, knowing they will be recompensed by the Lord. That's remarkable. That is remarkable. We're going to see an entirely new vision of authority and rule and stewardship here that's envisioned by God and by the apostle. It's doing the will of God from the heart. We see that back in verse 6. Bond servants obey, verse 5, Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people-pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. So what do I think he means by do the same? Do the will of God from the heart as well. That'll apply itself a little differently, but it means that we're getting at um, the will of God. And Paul's already addressed that a number of times in this letter. We're not left to wonder, what does he mean by the will of God? Turn back to chapter 1. This is somewhat a review from two weeks ago, but because the instructions are the same, I think it's worth looking at it. We oftentimes wonder about what God's will is, and frequently we mean things like, should I go to this college or that college? Should I take this job or that job? Should I buy the red car or the blue car? God has a will for those things, but primarily what he's revealed his will concerning are different things. So just look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Look at chapter 1, verse 5. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So our predestination is part of God's will. Paul's calling in his apostle, part of God's will. Where is it moving towards? Look at verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So God's end game of his will is the unification of all things in his son, with his son as the glorified head. Our election and predestination, our salvation is a means to that end. That's the will of God. And so masters need to do their ruling, understanding how they fit in that schema, And how their rule works towards that end. We're not done talking about his will. Look at verse 11. In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. For our salvation, the exaltation of Jesus Christ, this is, in Ephesians, God's will. But we're not done there. Turn to chapter 2. The big contrast to our former way of life, our former way of living, was we served different will, right? Chapter 2, verse 1, describing all of our former state prior to coming to faith in Jesus Christ. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we were all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires, or the will, of the body and the mind. So we used to serve a different will, a sinful will. And now, first slaves and the masters are told, no, now, as Christians, as God's redeemed, as his sons and daughters, you do his will sincerely from the heart. Same instructions to both pairings. Remarkable. Remarkable. So God's will has been revealed in this letter. This means also then, point two, that this command governs both their actions and attitudes. He cares about what they do and how they do it. It's to be from the heart. It's to be done sincerely. It isn't something you can do begrudgingly. In fact, the attitude of these masters is is the focal point of the instruction, how they govern, how they rule those under their charge. This also means, point three, they must use their authority as unto the Lord, which might be a remarkable concept, but if God has given you a measure of authority, if you're a parent, he has, if you're a husband, he has, if maybe in your workplace you have authority, your rule of your authority can be righteous and right. Our, Our culture tends to just hate any and all claims to authority. And we can become intimidated and and we can become embarrassed of authority because we've seen tyranny, we've seen evil rule. But if you exercise your rule, whatever that might be over whatever sphere you have, as unto the Lord, fitting in his will, his plan, which is ultimately a plan for your and my redemption, our growth in the image of Christ, and his universal exaltation, then you can exercise your rule righteously, rightly, justly so they're to do the will of God from the heart they're to understand their place in God's cosmic universal plan to save his people and glorify his son and unite all things in him that that's what they're to do just as their slaves are as well second point b here do good to them knowing you'll be recompensed by the lord the second time that verb to do, poyao shows up is in verse 8. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. And then he starts, masters, do the same to them. So do good to them. I mean, again, this are remarkable instructions. Oftentimes in management or in rule, there's an assumed adversarial relationship. Of course, the employees get got to get away with as much as they can. Of course, the employer's got to get away with as much as he can. He's going to get as much work out of you as he can, and as little pay as he can. You're going to try to take as many breaks as you can without getting... There's an assumed hostility. And here, do the same to them. And the antecedent of do is doing good, doing the will of God to them, directed towards their slaves, their bond servants. There isn't room here for an assumption of a hostile relationship. Do good to them. Now, he's not here dissolving the relationships. We've already seen that. He's told the slaves to obey their earthly masters. What is saying is within that relationship, to be characterized by goodwill, where Christ is king in both slave and master, goodwill between each of the parties. Do good to them, knowing you'll be recompensed by the Lord. This also then means the Lord sees their conduct. The Lord sees their conduct. He's aware of how they're treating them, and he cares. God cares how you manage those under your authority. He cares how you rule within your spheres, and he will reward their good conduct. He sees, and he'll be recompensed. You might think, well, I could be taken advantage of. I could be uh, robbed by lazy employees. And this, again, doesn't mean that you're not, and we'll see this in a it. it doesn't mean you're not exercising rule with restraint and rules and consequences. It doesn't mean you've got rose-colored glasses on and you're being taken advantage of left, right, and center. It means that you desire to have a good and do good towards those under your authority. It means you desire their welfare. You want them to succeed. It's a starting point of how you're coming at those under your authority. You are trying to do good to them knowing that God will see and reward your conduct so that's what's to put on. And you can just think in the Roman world in the first century how radical this instruction was. And even in today's philosophy of management, I think, and in the business world, this is counterintuitive. Um, you're to do God's will. You're to see your stewardship, your authority, as is taking place within the will of God, his plan to save his people, glorify his Son, unite all things in him, And your attitude should be to do good to them if you're able. We'll get further clarification by what we're not to do, because you remember how these put-ons and put-offs help clarify each other. So part of what it means to do the will of God from the heart, part of what it means to do good to them, is to stop threatening. To stop threatening. The command is clear. The grammar makes it clear. Paul assumes to some extent they're doing this. Cease from threatening would be another way of translating this. To put off. Stop your threatening. So if you think about that, what's the opposite? Because the way these put-offs and put-ons work, they clarify each other. The opposite of, of of threatening, and you try to fit that in with good will, would mean this is a command that there would not be ill will or a lack of sincerity. You're to stop threatening. What, what does he mean by that? I think what he's doing here is condemning and rebuking and, and, and forbidding Governance by fear and manipulation. Do not govern by fear and manipulation. Um, The terrible power of a master in a a society where there's slavery is the ability to inflict physical harm and punishment, right? Um, And so if you are concerned with maximizing the work from your workforce, you will threaten them, you will intimidate them, you will scare them, you will cajole them, frighten them into doing what you want them to do. And in a pragmatic sense, that makes a certain amount of sense. Paul says, stop it. Stop doing that. What does it mean to have a, do good to them, to do the will of God from the heart? It means not to rule that way. The word for threatening is the same word used to describe Paul in Acts 9.1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. Now he's not here for forbidding all forms of threat. There's something we could call a threat. I mean, I tell my children this. I just want to let you know. I tell the kids, "Here's what your mother and I want you to do, whether it's cleaning the room or doing your homework, and if it's not done at this time, there'll be a consequence. There'll be punishment, right? And there's a sense in which you could say, "I'm threatening them. Oh, OK, fair enough, I am." But there's a big difference between telling someone, here's the consequence, or even administering that consequence, and adopting a threatening, intimidating. Attitude and rule. That's what he has in mind. If the primary way you govern is through intimidation, threatening, instilling fear, stop it. Stop it. This doesn't mean there isn't a place for discipline. He's already told the fathers to be raising their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I think we understand the difference between administering appropriate discipline or even warning of appropriate discipline and adopting a Governance style of threat and intimidation and fear. These are antithetical to goodwill and doing good and seeing your place in God's will in that. And that's the assumption. You can't do both. You can't do them good. You can't carry out God's will from your heart if the way you do it is tyranny and fear. And so Paul. Commands them to stop that, and he does that in the presence of their slaves by giving this command corporately. There is corporate accountability, right? There's corporate accountability. Not only does he give them these instructions, but everyone else hears them. Give those instructions. Stop your threatening. Do not govern by fear or manipulation. Point B: because all such governance is wicked. All such governance is wicked. Ultimately, when we're trying to rule by fear, and we talked about this even in our parenting series, you're making it about yourself. I want my children, I'll use my children as the closest people I have under my authority, I want my children to obey me and my wife, because there's a living God to whom they're beholding. I want them to see my rule in their life as his steward, carrying out his will. As I try to intimidate them, as I try to scare them, as I try to manipulate them, I'm making it about me. The the, the focus comes off the living God, and it comes on to, I don't want to make Dad scared. I don't want to get Dad angry. And and the rule becomes about me. The same thing can happen in any other scenario, whether you're a manager, whether you're a king. And and that type of rule is wicked. This is similar to the instruction that John the Baptist gave to the centurions who came to be baptized in Luke 3.14. Soldiers asked him, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. Again, these are people of a level of rule in society. They're the policemen, if you will. Don't intimidate, don't extort, don't threaten. Be content with your wages. The kingdom of God and his principles of rule are antithetical to this world's. And, and if you're trying to get your way by scaring, intimidating, manipulating others, it's ungodly. That's the way the enemy rules. In fact, that's the treatment Jesus was subjected to. In 1 Peter 2.23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. So Jesus had people trying to intimidate him and scare him and rule him that way. Don't, Don't take part in that type of rule. Don't adopt that type of leadership style. Put it off. Take it off. Positively, then, what I think this means is to govern with goodwill and justice. With goodwill and justice. And, and I get some confirmation from a parallel passage in Colossians. Turn over to Colossians chapter 4. The structure of Ephesians and Colossians is very similar. They touch many of the same points, give very similar instruction in different places. And Paul's instruction to masters is in Colossians 4.1. And you'll see even the similarity of the reason he gives. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So you're not exercising rule through fear and intimidation and tyranny. You are recognizing it as fitting into God's will and cosmic plan. You are seeing it as a means to do good, And so you're exercising that rule justly. I mean, we got to factor that there is a just authority. In in Paul's day, there were just slave owners. I I know that's tough for us to wrap our heads around, but Philemon would be one of them. And so Paul tells them to govern with goodwill and with justice. Now, all that is just ethical instruction, but he ends this verse, and we'll, we'll end our study this morning with the renewal. The why. Everything's theological. Everything's theology. Because we all have motivations in why we do what we do. And again, he uses the same type of logic that he just gave to the slaves. You'll notice the instruction to the slaves says, gives them their instruction, and then look at how verse 8 starts. Knowing. It's the same thing we get here. Knowing. What's going to enable them to do this? Keeping certain truth in their mind. Paul's well aware their temptation... Our temptation when we receive authority is to think it's due to how smart, how wise, how capable we are. To think it speaks about our worth, our value, and to think that your subordination under me speaks to your lesser worth, your lesser value. And so Paul tells these masters, there's truth you need to keep in your mind. It's going to humble you. It's going to keep you humble, where you should be. It's Two truths. First, knowing that he who is both their master and yours, is in heaven. You may be a master, you may be a slave, you may be a husband, you may be a wife, you may be a child, you may be a parent, but you have a master. We all have a master. So whatever authority you have on earth fits under his ultimate authority. You're just in that pecking order much further down the line. And in one sense, our common beholding to him is a far more unifying factor than any horizontal, earthly, temporal authority we may hold. It's not to make such relationships unimportant. This whole household code is in place because they are. Paul is absolutely not throwing them out because in Christ we're all one. God does care how we order ourselves in the home on earth, but he also cares that while we order ourselves properly, we don't make any mistakes thinking it's more important than it is, that it's more significant than it is. And so slaves and masters, you both have one master in heaven. Slaves and masters are accountable to one master. That's humbling. Slaves just heard Paul tell their masters they have a master. They have that in common. And they have a master in common. This is because, and we saw this two weeks ago, all Christians are slaves of God. All Christians are slaves of God. I'm going to give you the other blank here and talk for a moment about this. And all earthly authority, all earthly authority, kings, rulers, dominions, parents, team captains, senators, emperors, they all exist under God's authority under the authority of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And this is an important truth to remember. He brings this out in both his instruction to the slaves and to the masters. Recognizing that we are slaves of God is critical for servants and slaves to function rightly and for masters to govern rightly. So this is an important truth. No- notice that. In verse 6, to the slaves, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as Slaves of Christ. So the slave is only going to perform his function, her function, rightly, undergirded by the truth, I'm a slave of God, of Christ. And the masters are only going to rule rightly when they keep in mind, I'm a slave of God. I have a master. Because slaves have masters. It's not you all have one employer. It's Not even you all have one king. His choice of vocabulary is Is intentional. Masters, you have a master, which means you're a slave. And this is a truth that's falling more and more in vogue, out of vogue in the church. You turn on TBN, and you see other truths. We're we're sons and daughters of God, children of the King. And American Christians are happy to sit on gold thrones, put crowns on their heads, and that's. You turn on TBN, that's what's going on. And yet, one of the dominant titles in the New Testament for a Christian. Not the only one. We're sons. We're to rule them. We're his children. We're his bride. We're his body. Yet, we're his slaves. I'm just giving you a sampling of this. How Paul writes this. Romans 1.1. 1, 1. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4.5. But Christ Jesus is Lord, with we ourselves as your slaves. For Christ's sake. Galatians 1.10 Am I trying to please man? If I was trying to please man, I would not be a slave of Christ. Colossians 1.7. Just as you learned from Epaphras, our beloved fellow slave. Second 2 Timothy 2.24. The Lord's slave must not be quarrelsome. Titus 1.1. 1, 1. Paul, a slave of God an apostle of Jesus Christ. James, the brother of the Lord. James is how he opens his letter. We'll get here in a month or two or three. We'll see. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Second Peter one one. Peter, Simon Peter, a slave and apostle of Christ Jesus. Jude one one. Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James. And listen to who the letter of Revelation was written to. I'm tr- I'm throwing the word slave in for the Greek doulos in all these places. Your your ESV or whatever translation you're using. The Holman Christian Standard will pretty consistently translate doulos as slave, but the ESV box at it. But listen to who the audience of the Book of Revelation is. This is the opening letter one one. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his slaves the things that soon must take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his slave John. The Book of Revelation is written to people who identify themselves as doulaces, bond servants if you like, of God. This is a pretty major theme of identification. And you can understand that as we dwell on that truth, it's going to have certain emotional, it's going to have certain cognitive alterations in how we think. And if all we focus on is we're going to rule with him and we're going to reign with him, which is true, it's going to have other results. Both slaves and masters need to be humbled and motivated by the truth that we ultimately, whatever position we're in, are slaves of God. We're not free agents. We are owned. We are bought. And so I, I challenge you to, to incorporate that into your self-identity, into your thinking. Maybe someone says, you know, are you, do you have a religious faith, I'm a slave of Christ. It's good enough for Paul, Peter, John, Jude, and the audience of the book of Revelation. Anyway. It is notable that both slaves and masters are reminded of this truth. We're only going to understand our authority structures as we see them as fitting within a larger authority structure. No one is ultimately the top dog wherever they are in that structure and system. And that's the only way we can exercise rule properly. All authority is under his. And then notice the next point. There is no partiality. With God. So the first truth to keep in mind, you in authority, you have a master. You may be the master of someone else, but you have a master. And that master isn't impressed that you're the CEO, the junior vice president, isn't impressed at all. That doesn't impress him. God is not impressed by the mighty. God is not impressed by the mighty. And this is further reasoning why we're not to adopt worldly values in our governance and rule. The world values other things, accolades, respect, obedience, because of who I am. Not because of who you are. If you have authority, God gives all authority. He governs all authority under his supreme authority. And only as we see ourselves fitting into that scenario... Can we rule and govern rightly? And God is not impressed by your title, the plaque on your door. He's not. Those aren't the things that impress him. He is not impressed by the mighty. And also, and this is gloriously good news, he does not despise the lowly. He does not despise the lowly. Turn, turn again over to James chapter one. We'll get here in a little bit. Paul has counseled both the rich and the poor in James. This is a common biblical theme. The danger of the rich is they're going to think too much of themselves. The danger of the poor may be that they buy some of the, the lies of this world and, and think poorly of themselves for the wrong reasons. You want to think poorly of yourself for your sin, for your lack of faith, your double-mindedness. I think those can be, that those, the Spirit can produce that. Think poorly of yourself because you haven't achieved, because you're uneducated, You don't drive a nice car. Throw that aside. That's, That's the wisdom of this world. Look at James 1, verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. This is a place, I think, for the... You've been adopted into God's family. You're going to reign and rule with him. When he comes on a white horse with a robe dipped in blood, you'll be part of that throng, part of that victorious army. And let the rich in his humiliation. Because all your wealth couldn't buy your salvation. All your wealth got you no credit or advancement with God. You were so filthy. I was so filthy. I needed the sinless son of God to die for me that I might be acceptable to him. So you rich, you also can boast glory in your humiliation. Because like the flower of the grass He will pass away. The sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So also the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. God's not impressed by your degrees, by your rank, by your station. And he does not despise your lowliness, your lack of achievement, your poverty. He's not impressed by those things. And this is the way we've got to understand these relationships. Turn, turn quickly to Luke, passage we've visited before. I, I think if there's anybody who gets this clearly, it's the centurion in Luke 12. You remember this. He sends Jesus because his servant, his slave, is sick. And the first delegation isn't the one he sent. They're people from the town, Jewish leaders who are impressed by him, and they tell Jesus, come, come, he is worthy, he's worthy, come. But as Jesus draws near, no, this is no, it's Luke 8, right? Not 12. Um, part Yes. No, 7. Wow. Edit that out of the tape, Simeon. Okay. Um, Luke 7. So yeah, there it is. In verse 4, they're like, he's worthy, he deserves you to come. Verse 6, when Jesus went with them, he was not far from the house. The centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, now hear these friends of him. Quote him directly. The first group of people have a report. He's worthy. He's meritorious. He deserves Jesus to come. The group that actually speak for the centurion, nope, he is not worthy. Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word, and let your ser- my servant be healed. For I too am a man under authority, the soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes to him. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does this. You see, this man understood his place. He has authority. He has a servant or a slave. He's a centurion. He has Roman soldiers under his authority. And yet he sees himself as under a higher authority and then he functions rightly within that. This is a beautiful picture of of getting this truth. He recognizes his own unworthiness. He doesn't put on glory and honor for himself because he's a centurion. No small achievement in the Roman world. I'm not worthy you'd even come in my house. He he understands this, that we have all one master. He's not a respecter of centurions. He's not a despiser of slaves. Point three, finally. God judges his household with justice. And that's the thing we need to finally keep in mind. Whatever our various roles are, sons, daughters, husbands, wives, children, rulers, managers, servants, God is watching. God is paying attention. He cares. And we know he cares particularly for the oppressed, the downtrodden, the mistreated, the weak, the powerless, the widow, the orphan, the sojourner. Remember them showing up again and again and again in the Old Testament list? We studied that a few weeks ago. God cares, and he will repay. How we relate matters. Even if you think you figured out a better way that works for you and your family better, God is watching. He will repay. He will judge and rule with justice to those who are faithful, to those who by faith received his instructions, understood that how you fulfill your bondservantness to God is in, and then he tells you what to do. It's wives, it's in submitting your husbands. and husbands, it's in sacrificing for your wives. In that sense, we're all slaves, we're all servants, we're all obeying the master, following his instructions. It's critical that we see ourselves in that matrix, whether you're in a position of rule, or a position of servitude. This is the end of the household code. This is the end of these relationships. We'll begin, God willing, next week into the final section about spiritual warfare and the armor of God. I'm going to close in prayer now, invite Pastor Daniel up as we prepare for a time of celebrating the Lord's table. Let's pray. Lord God, help us to adopt the mindset of slaves. Help us to echo... Our Lord's instruction that even when we've been faithful, even when we've been obedient, that we should say we've done nothing more than our duty. Lord God, help us not to think too much of ourselves. To be too proud, to be too arrogant, to be too self-entitled. Whatever position you've called us to, we are all your slaves, we are all your servants. We all had to be bought out of the slave market of sin. We are yours Command us to do as you will, and give us the grace to do as you command. In Jesus' name, amen.